website is nebulaphotos.com and then I'm also Nebula Photos on YouTube. So as the name suggests, I really like uh, photographing nebulae. I was just sort of uh, bumbling around after college and ended up in Iceland and took a picture of the aurora borealis and that's sort of what really drew me in. I really like the the sort of immediacy of, of shooting with the DSLR because you have it right there in the, the live view. Um, and it's it's also a lot faster, I think, to set up with the DSLR, in my opinion. Like you don't have to bring out all the heavy batteries and laptops and all of that kind of stuff. I'm more into it for seeing astrophotography as an art form and really trying to get beautiful pictures. Nico Carver is our guest today, an astrophotographer who specializes in imaging nebulae using DSLRs and relatively simple equipment. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Nico Carver, astrophotographer extraordinaire. <laughs> How you doing, man? Very good. Thanks for having me. You were telling us before we started recording here that you're an astrophotographer that uses primarily DSLRs. You want to tell us a little bit about your your setup and some of the some of the things that you enjoy astrophotographing. So uh, my uh, website is nebulaphotos.com, and then I'm also Nebula Photos on YouTube. So as the name suggests, I really like uh, photographing. Nebulae. You like you some nebula. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, they are sort of what I've fallen in love with, and they are nice to shoot um, as an amateur because they're often very large in the sky. Um, uh, they appear very large. Um, many of them are, you know, many full moons across, um, meaning that we can capture them with uh, camera lenses and even get some detail with uh, at low focal lengths. Um, so that's what I've sort of. Uh, grown to love. It's not really how I got started with the hobby. Um, I was just sort of uh, bumbling around after college and ended up in Iceland and took a picture of the aurora borealis. And that's sort of what really drew me in. And at the time, I didn't know the term astrophotography or anything like that. But when I saw what the camera could do with the aurora, I was just hooked. Well, what what do you mean what it could do? How did you, did you just set it up on a tripod and start clicking? And I just set it up on, yeah, exactly. I just set it up on a tripod and did a 10 second exposure. And yeah. It was just amazing what came back. Like my eyes could see this pale green and it was, you know, the movement was incredible. But then what the camera could do was it, it brought out all these really vibrant colors, the pinks and the reds um, and the the star field. And, I, and it was just, I was blown away. Um, and I, I'd never taken a picture at night before. So I was just surrounded by all these other photographers and they were telling me, yeah, try a long exposure. And so I did. And it was just from then on out, I was like, I got to. I got to get into this. Oh, wow, that's cool. How how long were you in Iceland? Uh, I was in Iceland a, a couple of weeks. This is back in 2014. Um, and then it, it I didn't get started with Deep Sky right away, um, partly because uh, I was on the East Coast and I just didn't 
feel like I could do it. Like I, I was like, oh, these I have so much light pollution here and I don't have the right equipment and blah, blah, blah. I was making sort of a lot of excuses for myself. Eventually, my partner, Maggie, just said, I'll give you $1,000 uh, if you just sort of shut up about this and go try it. <laughs> and, if you just be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> and so I bought my first camera tracker, which was the AstroTrack, um, and put my DSLR on it with just the camera lenses I had and started taking photos from light polluted areas, but was just amazed that I could capture nebula uh, right from Newark, Delaware, where I was living at the time, right from my backyard, just with a pretty simple setup. What were some of your first ones? Um, Orion was definitely my first one. And now I, I definitely focus on that with my YouTube videos because uh, I think it's one of the the better ones to shoot first. Um, I think after that, I tried, you know, Andromeda Galaxy. These are sort of the, the hit list of people's favorites. Um, and the California Nebula was an early one. Uh, I, I, my earliest challenge was the Witch Head Nebula because that's a reflection nebula. So it's, it's hard to do from a light polluted area. But I, I traveled to a state park and, and tried that. Wow. So just to be clear, this is just a DSLR on a tripod. On a tripod, um, what, I, we had the Astro Track actually. Yeah, I had the Astro Track starting out, but now what I'm doing with my YouTube is trying to get people interested in doing it, even if they don't have the tracker yet. Because I think the Astro Track was something like uh, seven hundred dollars. I know now there's even cheaper trackers, but if you don't even have the funds for that yet, I still think you can get started just with uh, putting it on a tripod, exactly, and uh, just taking short exposures. Especially for, yeah, targets like M42 that are so bright. I mean, a lot of the ones you listed, they're, they're really bright, they're easy to find, and, uh, you know, you can see them from just about anywhere. Obviously, darker skies are better, but all of them, except for the Witch's Head, are all emission nebulous. You get to take advantage of, um, you know, light pollution filters or even narrowband filters, and really, I mean, you can cut the light pollution out almost entirely going to super narrow, narrow band filters. And I'm looking at some of your photos and it looks like you're doing that. Cause I even see some Hubble palette stuff here and uh, your work is incredible, by the way, this, this stuff is beautiful. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I, I've, I've, uh, over the past, uh, four years, I've gotten more and more obsessed and yeah, I now have narrow band filters and all of that. But I think, uh, even, uh, when starting out, I was trying the, the light pollution filters the the issue I found with the the classic light pollution filters is they were trying to cut out the sodium um, lights, and now we have a lot of LED uh, street lights, and mm -hmm. so they're maybe not as effective. But I know that now for DSLRs you can get uh, those those sort of narrow bandish filters, right? That that just have the the band passes around the emission lines. I haven't right. I haven't tried one yet, but I really want to. Yeah, it's what a lot of people are switching to. I mean, we we took one to Times Square and shot with it. And uh, I mean, you can you can shoot from pretty much anywhere, you know, because it's so narrow. The one that that most people are using is called the Triad Ultra filter, but it's actually four nanometers across four different oh, wow. channels. So, yeah, you can you can pull out all that detail, but still, you know using a color camera, which is which is really the fun part. And that's why I'm so interested in in talking to you is I want to talk about equipment. I want to talk about uh, the differences because you shoot both. You have a uh, cooled CMOS camera, an Astro dedicated camera, and you have uh, a lot of DSLR uh, images that you're shooting. And so what's been your experience? Which do you prefer? 
Uh, I really like the the sort of immediacy of uh, of shooting with the DSLR because you have it right there in the the live view, um, and it's it's also a lot faster, I think, to set up with a DSLR. In my opinion, like you don't have to bring out all the heavy batteries and laptops and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Cables. Yeah, cables. Yeah, cables are a nightmare. <laughs> oh, man, I hate cables. I hate them with a passion. Yeah. Um, one of my popular videos, I, I was using the, the iOptron SmartEQ mount, which is a, one of the smallest equatorial mounts you can get. Um, and the hand controller, it has internal AA batteries. The, the DSLR has internal batteries, of course. So there was no cables on that setup. Uh, it yeah. was basically just running. You could just set it, plop it down polar align and then and get going. Um, so I really think that's appealing, especially to beginners. Um, and even, even for me, it's like, sometimes I just don't like bringing all my stuff out and setting it all up because it takes about an hour. I don't have any kind of uh, fixed backyard observatory or anything like that. I, I, I rent, I'm in an apartment. So um, a lot of times just setting up a DSLR on a tripod is, a, is, is really fun. Um, recently, I captured the, the Venus M45 conjunction with the DSLR, and then the ISS uh, went right through my frame as I was capturing it. And that was just a, a me, you know really fun to see. Um, and I don't think I would have captured it if I had set up my, my bigger uh, setup. Yeah, and, and this, there's a lot to be said for that because I, I get the question all the time. Should I start with a DSLR? And usually I tell people, yes, if you've already if you already have one, then you probably should. And I think a lot of people end up going back to that route anyway. Um, not for image quality reasons, but for the reason of what you're mentioning, the simplicity of just clicking the camera onto the scope and pushing the button and then seeing the color image pop up on the back of the screen. There's a, it's so fun. It's such a fun way to image compared to, you know, setting up the camera, plugging in all the cables, running it to a computer, and now you're managing everything through your computer, which feels, you know, very, very different. The process feels so different with imaging, you know? Yeah, and I, I find that a lot of people, you know, it's hard the more complex your setup, the harder it is to track down those problems, which we all have. So it's like, well, I don't know, is this, is this cable broken or what's going on here? I can't figure it out. And you can just have a whole night where you're just trying to chase down the demons in your system and you don't get anything done. Um, I've also seen people sort of obsess about, you know, guiding numbers and things like that. And they, it's just, I don't know. I think for a lot of people, they enjoy that kind of uh, tinkering, but uh, it's not for everyone. Um, so I think there's there's different ways to enjoy the hobby. Definitely, um, some people are more natural tinkerers, and uh, I, I'm more into it for uh, seeing astrophotography as an art form and really uh, trying to get beautiful pictures. Your, your YouTube videos seem to be mostly centered around, especially the most popular videos, seem to be centered around uh, DSLR astrophotography. And I think there there are so many people doing it that way just because DSLRs are something that most people already have or they have access to. Um, I'd like to know your your thoughts about like, what do you tell people the best way? Because I'm sure you get this question all the time. What do you tell people the best way to get started is? And um, I mean, do you think that DSLRs are the answer for, you know, simplistic imaging or successful imaging right out of the gate? Um, I think that if you already own a DSLR, that's, that's definitely a good way to get started. I, I often have comments that are, are something like, 
oh, well, I didn't know I could do this with a DSLR. And, and it's just, it's surprising to me. Um, and I, I also get a lot of comments saying like, oh, I borrowed my uncle's DSLR, my brother's DSLR and tried out your technique and it worked, things like that. So I think that DSLRs are around in a lot of people's homes or they know someone who owns one. And it's a, it's a cool way to get started with astrophotography. Um, there's definitely other ways to get started too. Like you could process Hubble data or something like that. But um, I think that doing it all yourself, like going through it every step of the way um, from acquisition to processing is, is really fun for a lot of people. And so I think that uh, it's really just that DSLRs are so accessible that, that a lot of people already know how to use them. That is the reason that I recommend them for beginners. Um, I don't, if, but some people might have different expectations. So if you really expect something uh, like, you know, what the best picture is being produced right now, then maybe you would want to jump right into a cool astronomy camera. It, it, it also sort of depends on your budget, I guess. Maybe we should kind of talk about the differences because um, I don't think that all of the listeners here will will know the differences. Many will, but not everybody. Sure. Um, so the differences in uh, DSLRs and cool, or what, what we'll call here, you know, astronomy dedicated cameras. You want to dig into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So an astronomy dedicated camera doesn't have a screen. It doesn't have an internal battery. Um, it doesn't have an internal memory card. So to do all those things, you really need a laptop connected to it. Um, and as soon as you're imaging with a laptop in the field, then you're thinking about power because it's like, um, especially in the cold, I find that laptop batteries die really fast. So you're, you're bringing out, um, like usually like a marine battery or something like that. And so a, a, an astronomy cam a dedicated astronomy camera, the advantage is that it's really designed for astronomy while DSLRs are not, they're designed for daytime photography. Um, some of the ways that astronomy cameras are designed for it is they are usually, uh, full spectrum, or they have uh, a special UVIR cut filter built in that allows that HA and S2 emission lines. Uh, while a DSLR, unless you get it modified, those emission lines are, are definitely reduced. So um, what that means is that all these red nebulae out there, uh, when you sh just shoot with a basic DSLR, they're, the red nebulae are not as bright as you would get with an astronomy camera. Um, there, then... With uh, specialized astronomy cameras, you often move to mono. And with mono, it really opens up all kinds of other possibilities because you can shoot uh, with individual filters. Rather than having that Bayer array in front of the sensor, you just have uh, a mono sensor. And you can bring in different filters uh, like HA and S2 and really get the most out of the camera. Um, so hopefully that made sense. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's that's a great explanation. And so most people do. You're right. Like they end up going. Uh, generally, what we see is people start with DSLRs or mirrorless cameras, and then they move into a cooled camera, but generally still color, and then ultimately end up going to mono cooled CCD or CMOS cameras with filters. And so that kind of implies that what people are chasing at first is an entry, a way in you know, that isn't overwhelming because it's a lot to jump in and say, okay, I'm going to start a new hobby. I'm also going to learn uh, 
all of the components that have to go together with a monochrome sensor, understanding the filters, the wheel, the back focus, everything involved, you know, potentially an OAG, all of this stuff. I'm going to learn all of that at the same time and then also learn how to process monochromatic images into color images. It's a lot. It's a big ask. Yes. And so it seems like DSLRs solve a lot of that because most of those steps are done for you. You know, you can just click it onto the back of a telescope. They're always 55 millimeters of back focus for DSLRs. Um, you know, so T-rings will bring you into focus on most telescopes because most companies know that and they, they set the back focus at 55 millimeters from the rear element um, with the included adapters. And then there's no, you know, you don't have to learn filters unless you're using light pollution filters, in, the, in which case there's no wheel. You just put one filter on. And so everything, the challenge of everything, including processing, is reduced because, I mean, even processing, really all you're doing is just stacking the images and you've already got a color image. That's it. Right. Well, you also mentioned when you were starting out, all you did was take your DSLR rig and put it on a tripod and get started. A lot of DSLRs have lenses, right? So astronomy-only ones kind of require some sort of telescope purchase in addition. So that makes it even one more layer on top of all the things you and Justin were just talking about. So uh, the DSLR route is simplified because of the lenses that you typically get with those as well. Definitely, yeah. And and not all the lenses are, defi- are necessarily geared uh, for taking pictures of the stars. Like a lot of times you'll get sort of funky star shapes. But I think that's really sort of uh, something that that people who are in the hobby a while care about. I think when you're first starting out, you just really care that, wow, I just took a picture of a nebula and it's showing right up here on my camera. And it came out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you step us through that? Because I, I, I know that, you know, talk, maybe talk about the DSLR lenses that do work best. And um, because this isn't a visual medium, unfortunately, I'm trying to visualize what your finished product looked like some of your first ones right when you got really excited you said you started in iceland with the aurora but but what about your first orion nebula what was the frame like was it a tiny part of a much wider field or did you zoom in you know maybe step us through that process a little bit for the first time sure yeah um so i think that when i first did it and what i recommend for a beginner is to start it around like a if you want to do deep sky stuff, uh, start it around between 50 and 100 millimeters. It, it's You're not going to get a ton the lens of focal length, the lens right? focal length, right? Yeah. And and a lot of people have zoom lenses or things like that. That's fine to start out with. Like if you have a, a 70 to 200 or something like that, just start at 70 millimeters. What that means if you if you don't have a tracker is you're going to take about two second exposures to, to keep your stars round. Because of course, uh, the Earth is constantly rotating around its axis. So if you do a, a very long exposure uh, at 70 millimeters, like let's say 20 seconds, your stars will turn into little lines. Um, and that can look cool too. It's like called like a star trails photo. But for stacking, we want our stars to be uh, round uh, because this, the stacking software expects round stars. Um, and it's how it, it matches your pictures based on the, the patterns of the stars. Um, so uh, we take about a two second 
exposure, 70 millimeters, if you immediately just go to playback and you're shooting Orion Nebula, you should be able to see the core of Orion Nebula if you zoom in. Um, And you'll also, of course, see the constellation. And it's one of the most recognizable constellations in the sky because of Orion's belt and everything like that. Um, It's not until we get to the stacking process, so we take hundreds of these two-second exposures, and it's not until we stack them in a program like Deep Sky Stacker and then stretch the image in something like Photoshop that we actually bring out the the, the full extent of the nebula. Um, so once you stack, once you stretch it, you see that you see the whole shape of Orion Nebula. Um, even with just two second exposures uh, at seventy millimeters, you can also make out the Horsehead Nebula, the Flame Nebula, and other uh, you know great things in the Orion constellation. So you're seeing a frame then that is really pretty wide field, even with the 70 millimeter, I think you said, right? So we're seeing the entire constellation within there. Uh, Can you, one of my favorite images and I've seen, and I've never known how this was taken other than I assume it's some kind of stacking method, but you can get that whole region of the sky in, I think, a single frame to include things like the Horsehead Nebula and Barnard's loop, I believe, uh, as well, can't you? If you just kept going, these are very faint H2 regions, but but could you keep going and maybe eventually bring out that t- detail as well? Yes. And uh, Barnard's loop might be a challenge without a tracker uh, because you, you, you might, you, I think you'd want longer uh, we call them sub-exposures, all the little pictures that make up the final exposure uh, to, to bring out Barnard's loop because it's pretty faint. But with, yeah. within a few weeks of owning the AstroTrack, I was getting Barnard's loop from a Bortle 9 uh, backyard. Uh, so I wow. mean, it's, it's, it's not, with DSLRs today and the processing software, it's amazing what amateurs can do. Yeah, because I was going to say one thing you got to be careful of with this kind of stuff is a two-second exposure is great, but if you know some things are just too dim and aren't going to get recorded at all, one of them being something as dim as, say, Barnard's Loop. So you would need to adjust that exposure to bring out some signal. And then adding it up brings more signal together, but you still each frame has to have at least something in it. Uh, yes. It it, yeah. If, if it's not above the, the noise floor uh, at two seconds, then you're never going to bring it out from stacking. Uh, so, but I was actually surprised in this, in this recent video I made, um, I was seeing a little bit of the witch head, uh, even with two second exposures, uh, after stacking about 400. I always thought these kind of images would be great as a large format print that you hung on your wall, because imagine having the entire region of the sky up in your living room, you know, where you could just see there's Orion, there's, there's the Orion Nebula, there's Horsehead, there's Barnard's Loop, there's all these other things. If you just look closely, you could see them right there on your wall. I I don't know what, I don't think you could just, well, maybe you can. Would, would you need to mosaic something like that to make it high resolution enough or if you wanted to make a good print? So I love uh, mosaics. They're sort of a, a, not not a beginner's topic because they're really difficult to do, but I've been working on a, a, a mosaic in Cygnus. Um, I have eight panels done, um, and I the plan is over a hundred panels. And and the, I'm doing it for the exact reason you mentioned is that I want to do a really really large print um, so that I can print it out like ten feet wide or something and put it up on a wall. I just think that's that's the most amazing kind of photograph. <laughs> and, and each panel would be the resolution of your camera, whatever it is. Exactly. Right? Yep. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, what are what is the noise like on this? When do you really just have to close the shutter? How long can you keep it open before things just get 
too stupid? Hmm, that's a good question. I've tried a, a 30 minute exposure doing star trails um, and I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> I, was do- <laughs> I was doing it during the summer and after 30 minutes, the thermal noise on the sensor is just so extreme. You just get so many hot pixels. You have about as many hot pixels as you do stars. <laughs> um, so I, I think that there is a, a practical limit. I I typically, when I have my camera on a, on a mount, do something like five minute sub exposures with a modern CMOS sensor, but I know that uh, people who have cooled CCDs will often do uh, 20 or 30 minute uh, exposures. But the the key thing there is the cooling, because if you're shooting in the summer uh, without cooling, you're just going to get so much thermal noise. So Dustin, are some some DSLRs better than others at that, or are they all just about the same across the board? Noise-wise, I guess. As far as thermal noise goes? uh, Yeah. yeah. So like how long an exposure you could, you could leave for those. Are they all pretty much the same? Sure. You know, generally what we find is that the bigger the sensor, the less it suffers immediately. Um, but that's not, you know, I mean, all sensors are different, right? And some are going to struggle with noise. I mean, some chips are just noisy in general. You see that in CMOS and CCD. For instance, Mm -hmm. like the 11,002 chips are known to be super noisy and require a ton of calibration. Whereas, you know, a lot of the the newer chips, people are shooting them without dark frames even. Um, So it really depends chip to chip. But um, you can get away with a lot with some of these medium format chips. I mean, I've shot 15 minute exposures with, you know, some of the big uh, Fuji medium format chips and it. It really doesn't struggle too much. I can calibrate the noise out. Whereas, you know, other chips I've shot, uh, you know, full frame Sony's and a few others. And man, you try 15 minutes on that and it's going to be it's going to be a lot to get that calibrated out. I mean, that thermal noise will get get up there quick without a cooler. Um, and that's where astronomy cameras just they win hands down is having a cooler attached to the chip. There's just no substitute for that. Nico, one of the questions I get asked, uh, probably the question I get asked most anymore is because, you know, because people are transitioning from Milky Way photography to deep space photography more and more all the time. Uh, the question is always, well, if I have a 100 to 400, why do I need to buy a telescope that's a 380 millimeter focal length or something like that? Why is a telescope different than a lens? Do you get that question a lot? Yeah, um, I do. And it sort of just depends on on your expectations. Uh, I think that to me, the biggest thing uh, that the telescope would offer uh, over the camera lens is easier focusing. Even just with uh, a stock focuser um, on a on a telescope, you usually it's usually two stage. It's so much easier just to dial in focus uh, than a lens where you're using the, like the lens barrel focusing system. Um, and uh, there there's definitely other advantages. Uh, a telescope is a little bit more configurable. So one of the challenges when you get a little bit more advanced with astrophotography is where do you put uh, a guide scope and things like that. With a camera lens-based system, it's you sort of have to three D print something because there's really there's really not much out there uh, because all the camera lenses and cameras are different. Well, with a telescope, it usually comes with built-in finder shoes and all kinds of stuff, um, and the, the you know the mounting rings have holes in them and everything, so that it's very easy to mount additional things onto the telescope system. Um, so when you're sort of going down the road and you're trying to advance in the hobby, a telescope is a lot easier, I think, to, to get to that next level. 
Yeah, and I, I typically tell people too, I mean, you think about it, and you can look at these, but they're designed for different purposes. And that's why when focused to infinity, telescopes always win. They are much, much sharper. And there's there's a few reasons that that's the case. You know, the first is um, they have a lot, way less lenses in them. You know, a typical uh, photographic lens, especially a zoom lens, is going to have around 18 elements in it. Whereas a good refractor would have like three, you know, even with a reducer built in, uh, you get really to like, like five. And so if you just think about transmission in general, there's going to be some reflection on every single surface. If you look at like, let's say your back window in your house. Sure, you can see through that one pane of glass, but you can probably also see a reflection of something inside your house on that pane of glass as well. Now imagine having 18 of those in a row, each one having some level of reflection. There's a lot of reflection happening inside your telescope, which diminishes, diminishes contrast and clarity. And so those are designed to be used terrestrially and their optimum points are never at the extremes. So lenses are always sharpest somewhere in the middle. It's never like, well, this lens is the sharpest at f1.4. It's always like, well, you can shoot it at f1.4, but it's sharpest at 5.6 or at f8. And, um, you know, with a telescope, that is fixed. And so it's designed to be sharp exactly where it is and focused to infinity. Camera lenses are never designed to be sharpest focused to infinity because it's the rarest use for a camera lens, you know? And so you got to think about the practical application for it. It can do this, but it's not designed for this. And that's why it will never compete as far as like sharpness and clarity is it's not a tool designed specifically for it. It's a tool being used to accomplish it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that where a camera lens really shines is probably at those lower focal lengths where you can't find a telescope at, let's say, 85 millimeters right, uh, or exactly, 135 yeah. millimeters. But then if you're talking about 600 millimeters, get a telescope because a 600 millimeter camera lens is going to be really expensive to get the same, you know, you're going to spend 10 times the amount with uh on a camera lens it's 600 millimeters when you could just get uh a nice refractor for under a thousand dollars exactly yeah yeah and so it that's the thing is i think when you pull the focal length back enough the answer is always use a camera lens you know you're going to shoot at 23 millimeters or 50 millimeters like use a camera lens because for one thing you're not going to be able to see you don't have enough resolution on target in a nebula then to see any of the problems that we're talking about you know, I mean, your, your focal length is so reduced, you're so wide field that that won't be apparent. Maybe there will be some distortion in the corners, but, you know, the, the real advantage of a telescope is the magnification and being able to, you know, divide the resolution of your sensor across the target. Um, and then, you know, having no issues out to the corners, you know, these flat field systems where there are no issues through the image all the way out to the furthest edges of it. And that's really what you're going for, but that's not specifically what, you know, camera lenses were designed for. Right. Yeah. Well, what do you guys think of these uh, DSLRs that are coming out now that have built in astrophoto modes? Um, I think I saw one with Canon just came out with one that has an astrophotography mode in it. Have, do you guys ever use those? Have you seen those before? And what do you think of them if you have? Yeah, I I uh, own the new Canon camera. It's the EOS RA, um, 
it's not it's the only real astrophotography feature it has built into the firmware is that it has a 30 times zoom um so normally the camera just goes from five times zoom to 10 times zoom and this one goes five times and then 30 times when you're looking at the picture in live view and that can really help uh focus uh, because you can really then get very close to the stars when you're focusing. I usually use a Badenov mask, but you don't need to necessarily if you're at 30 times zoom because you, you can really see when that star gets to its uh, smallest point for good focus. Um, the only other thing that the RA offers over a normal DSLR is that it uh, has a different UVIR cut filter built in. Um, so typically what DSLR imagers do when they want to capture these emission nebula is they go and modify their cameras. They, they either send them out to a service or they do it themselves. And this one has that built in from Canon. So you, you have the full warranty. You're not breaking your warranty because it's already modified. What do you think about, what do, what do both of you think about camera modifications? Do you think that's a good idea for people or, or what do you, what do you typically recommend on that? I, I think that you sh you some people uh, will just say, well, I'm not I'm not going to start astrophotography till I modify my camera. I think you should you should start just with your camera unmodified and, and capture some things first. Uh, you don't have to go out and do that right away. Like in the Milky Way, there's just amazing things that you don't really need modification for. There's all these dark nebula in front of the star fields. Uh, so I think that. Uh, Try some pictures before you decide if you want to modify. Um, you don't you don't need to do it right off the bat. Well, what does that even mean? I'm modifying it. Does that mean putting in new software or? Oh, sorry, mean? no. It means uh, normally uh, a DSLR is designed for daytime use, so it has very strict cutoffs um, for the wavelengths about. 640 mil nanometers up, um, trying to, to cut off as much of the near IR range as possible. Um, but the problem with that is then you're also cutting off the HA emission line and the, the sulfur emission line. Um, so what a modified camera does is they put in a new filter um, that is a wider band pass. It, it goes more into the near IR. Um, so you, you get those HA and S2 emissions. And what, what do I th what do I think about it? I I, I think that uh, it's a little bit risky, especially with expensive DSLRs. Um, especially to do it yourself, uh, you you need to be willing to possibly break your camera. If you send it out to a professional, then I think that it's a little less risky. But you're you still don't know exactly what you're going to get back. Um, I modified a, a Nikon D800 um, with a professional service, and when I got it back, there was a lot of red bloat around bright stars. Um, and so uh, it's sort of a trade-off. I do get those HA emission nebula a lot better, but then the stars don't look quite as uh, as crisp. I never recommend anybody. I used to. I used to recommend that it's something people do, but I never do that anymore. I don't I don't think it's a good way to go. I think you're you're taking something that is the advantage of a DSLR is its simplicity and versatility. You know, it's so simple to use and, you know, more so I think the real advantage is the versatility. You can take this camera and do your daytime photography, you know, go to the zoo with it or whatever. And then you can also use it for a nighttime shooting. But a DSLR is never going to be the cooled astro camera that, um, that you're trying to, you know, replicate doing this and you're having to spend money on something where honestly cameras have come down so 
they've become so inexpensive now for Astro uh, dedicated cameras that for under a thousand dollars you can get a really really high end camera anyway that has cooling that doesn't have to be modified. It already is sensitive to HA and and everything that you need. So it's like the people spending this money on these modifications are voiding their warranties. They're you know decreasing the amount of versatility the camera has and increasing the risk because now they you know they don't have this warranty and they're not really getting images that would compete with the Astro modified camera anyway because it's still not a cooled camera. So and even if you go that route, I mean now you have this you know this very expensive modification to a camera that you know honestly the $700 camera could have outperformed in the first place, you know? True. the the only the only sort of use case I still see for astro modified DSLRs is like if you're a nightscape uh, person and like you really want to get the best out of your Milky Way nightscape and have those HA emission really pop. Um, I wouldn't want to bring a dedicated astronomy camera like into the you know Sierras or something because uh, it just there's just too much stuff to bring. So I think that that's maybe the one place I could see having a modified DSLR or something like these new uh, the the Canon EOS RA uh, would be an advantage. Oh yeah, definitely for for Milky Way shooting or with landscape. I agree. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point because I, it definitely you don't want to bring a computer out to do that. You could. But I don't see most people wanting to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I'd agree with that. I, mean, I just mean deep space shooting is where I'm seeing most people ask the question, should I modify my camera to go shoot nebulae? And it's just the best camera sometimes is another camera, a, a second camera, you know, if it's really needs to be purpose driven like that. Well, so I've been doing a lot of streaming lately on Twitch and uh, I talk about astronomy uh, most weeknights and then Dustin uh follows up with amazing, uh, you know, an astronomy or observatory stream with the equipment that he uses. And uh, I've been getting these people on uh, the chat that are really, some of them are really very funny and they they ask a lot of great questions. But one night we got into a a question about what's our favorite everything. So let me ask you this, Uh, you know, what's your favorite galaxy? What's your favorite this and that? So since you're a nebula guy, uh, what's your favorite nebula? My favorite nebula is the Spaghetti Nebula. It's a Simeus 147. It was only discovered in the 1950s in one of these uh, wide field surveys that was going on, I think Palomar, um, because it's so dim. But it is huge. Um, it, it, I captured it, and it just fit in my field of view with a 200-millimeter camera lens. Uh, so it's, it's really, really big. It's a very old supernova remnant and it has all of these little, um, filaments going all the way through it, but it sort of looks like a brain. Um, and I just think it's really cool looking. So that's my favorite. <laughs> that's your I was, favorite I was actually looking at that photo on your page when you, when you brought that up, but it looks like you planned this because your field of view is literally perfect for it. You know, it's like it, I mean, it fits exactly in your field of view and that is an incredible shot, man. It's always, that is such a challenging target and, uh, you really have it bright right here. Yeah. I, I really, the more that I've gotten into the hobby, I really like the challenging sort of offbeat targets that, you know, you need to put in 15 hours or something to bring out, uh, cause they're just so fun. And how did you shoot, uh, how'd you shoot this? That I shot, uh, 
with an equatorial mount. It was the Orion Atlas uh, mount. And I uh, used a Canon 200 millimeter uh, prime lens. And then on the back of my Canon lens, I have a filter wheel uh, with Astrodon narrowband filters and the ZWO ASI 1600 cooled uh, mono camera. Um, And I shot, I think about I don't remember the totals now, but a lot of HA frames and a lot of O3 frames. And then it's a bicolor image, uh, meaning that in processing, I assigned the HA emission to the red channel and the O3 emission to the green and blue channel. Yeah, there's actually a lot of um, of O3 in this target. I didn't realize that because most people just leave it red with just the HA really showing through. But you have a ton of blue in this image. Yeah, and I think the um, one area in which uh, the ASI 1600 really excels is it has a pretty high quantum efficiency in that region. Um, and because I, I have other buddies that that shoot with the the CAF 8300, the CCD chip that has about the same field of view, and um, they they weren't getting as much O3 on similar targets. So I think so, in some ways uh, the CMOS. Uh, imagers are already uh, sort of exceeding expectations over their CCD counterparts. Yeah, the 1600 especially, that is such a versatile chip. I see people using it in really every application from camera lenses up to long focal length scopes, and it still performs extremely well. Um, and for the money, I mean, it, that's a tough value to beat the 1600mm. Yep. Yeah, I, I can't see myself uh, uh, changing that as my as my primary, uh, you know, mono camera. I still I still love the DSLRs too, and will continue to use those. But uh, for my for my mono narrowband imaging, I, I I think the sixteen hundred fits my needs perfectly. You want to talk about your YouTube channel a little bit, your videos, sure. and some of the stuff you're doing on that uh, because you've got quite the channel. You've got uh, several uh, categories of videos that you do with. Uh, uh, start to finish on on various objects you also do uh looks like reviews things like that so you want to talk about your yeah um so the, I, my thought with the the youtube channel i sort of got started slowly with it but then i realized what i really wanted to do was just um encourage people to get started with astrophotography so i'm just thinking about different videos that um will will maybe make people think oh i can do this um and the whole idea with the start to finish is that I found a lot of times I would be watching a YouTube video, it'd be like, you know, five to 10 minutes, and it only give me a part of the process. Um, and a lot of people, I think, want to see the entire process from planning what you are doing. So thinking about what gear you need, and where something is in the sky, to going out and shooting it, and then processing it afterwards. So I put all of that in one video and that video ends up being about two hours. And so a lot of people are like, this is way too long, but that's really what you need to explain the process start to finish because astrophotography um, isn't super simple. Um, I'm trying to make it seem simple, but but you need about two hours to explain the process of capturing something. Yeah. From somebody uh, cold turkey, that's definitely true. And, you know, it used to be true what you just said, that, you know, things were just too long. Everybody, well, the infrastructure of YouTube forced everybody to keep everything under 10 minutes. But then that all changed. And now, and then it was uh, people's attention spans. They wouldn't sit through a video longer than five or seven minutes. And and now that's all changed. The the attention spans are greater now. And and two-hour videos are actually the norm. Uh, So 
So you, are you finding then that you're getting a good response from your... Oh, yeah. I mean, on, on my, one of my recent ones, I had over a thousand comments. I'm at this point with my channel, it's small enough that I'm trying to respond to every question um, in oh, the yeah. YouTube comments. Because uh, I just think that really, um, when people can get a pretty quick answer to their questions, they really like that. Um, and, and I enjoy doing it. So I just, you know, wake up in the morning and try to try to answer as many comments as I can. Um and people have often uh, similar questions. Some of the questions that Dustin is bringing, bringing up, like what what camera should I buy? Can I do it with this camera? And I, I am always just saying, yeah, yeah, try, try it. You know, <laughs> the, the really the thing with astrophotography is, uh, and I I was guilty of it too. We can make excuses for why we're not doing it, but really you should just try, and and you'll be surprised at what you can get with with any equipment. Yeah, already what catches my mind, my eye is is the one that you posted a few weeks ago. No tracker, no telescope, no problem. Yeah, uh, Orion, right. tel- Orion Nebula without a without a telescope or a star tracker. I think that's a great idea for a video. And that one, you're right, is about two hours long. So um, these look really interesting and really like like you said, you're trying to get people's questions answered who's probably never even done a single photo uh, under a night sky yet. So this is really cool. Can we talk a little bit about your processing? you know what you do with these images after you've clicked the shutter a few times at night sure yeah so that's another thing i should mention about my youtube channel is i'm trying with each start to finish video um showing the processing in uh at least three workflows um one is PixInsight. So a lot of people who are already involved with astrophotography know about that program, but that's a, um, a little bit advanced and expensive. So I also show it with Deep Sky Stacker and Photoshop. Um, Deep Sky Stacker is a free stacking program on Windows. And then uh, Photoshop is is probably the most famous photo editing application out there. And then lastly, I show it with Deep Sky Stacker and the GNU image manipulation program um, <laughs> wow. because those programs are both free. So if you wanted to just really you know, do free astro processing, why not? Just use free programs. Um, the one complaint I've had is that Deep Sky Stacker is not available on uh, Mac. So I'm looking into a program called Cyril, which is another uh, free open source project for stacking. Um, and I might add that to my repertoire too. Um, so I well, really love GIMP also. GIMP is also just, isn't it still just under Linux or do they have PC and Mac versions too? No, they have PC and Mac versions too. And for, for a long time, the problem with GIMP was that um, it didn't do 16-bit processing. It only uh, supported 8-bit, yeah. which is not very good for astro image processing where we want all of that accuracy. Um, so uh, I didn't use it for a long time, but in, in, in later releases, they now do 16-bit processing. So it, it works pretty well. I stopped using GIMP about 10 years ago because it was just like, uh, it's almost there. It almost does what I want, but it's different enough from Photoshop to just really irritate me. So I stopped uh, because it was like, you know, the layers were just different enough and all the scaling and stuff. And so it just became frustrating. And so I just, I I never went back to it, but uh, I guess it's gotten better. It has gotten a lot better. It's still frustrating if you're a Photoshop user, I got to be honest, because <laughs> yeah. things are just, like you said, they're just different enough that you're like, oh, I don't know how to do this, but yeah, um, <laughs> this should be, this is just, it's just this mouse click in Photoshop. I can yep. just do this, right? <laughs> but, uh, but people leave comments who are more experienced with GIMP and I try to incorporate those. Like uh, one of them was, I have a process uh, to remove uh, the light pollution gradient. So pretty much, 
no matter where you are, unless you go to the darkest skies, you're going to have some gradient in your background Mm -hmm. uh, because of light pollution. And light pollution is, of course, brighter as we get to the horizon. Um, So with wide lenses, that gradient can be really extreme. Um, So I have a process for removing those light pollution gradients in Photoshop. And when I tried to translate that process to GIMP, I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, And so I tried my best and I I sort of drew out a gradient. And then some people in the comments uh, said, oh, you should do it this way. So so next time I do a processing video, I'll I'll, I'll do it their way. And I think it'll, it'll come out a lot better. Well, I may actually, I may watch that video because that's an, so you've got a technique for removing that sky, I call it sky background, but you, the little gradient from the, from the light pollution itself. We're not talking about like the dusk gradient that you get when the sun just goes down. You're talking about whatever a light dome nearby or something, right? Exactly. Yep. The light dome. I, I have a process for removing that in Photoshop. Um, and it's, it, you're basically trying to create a model of that background. Um, And so Photoshop has a command called dust and scratches filter. And if you uh, apply dust and scratches with a pretty high radius, it will remove all the stars and remove actually most of the nebulae and everything else in the photo and just leave you with that sky background. And then you can subtract that from your main image and it basically just wipes out that uh, gradient. Um, PixInsight has tools that are even better uh, called like automatic background extraction and dynamic background extraction that do the same wow. thing. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely possible in, in any of these modern programs. Okay. Wow. That's really cool. I always thought that was a multiplicative effect though. So you had to divide by those images, not subtract, but I guess if it's low enough, it wouldn't matter. Um, yeah, you could try dividing, and in 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 uh, PixInsight, I actually often do divide. I don't know if I've tried divide in Photoshop. That's a good tip. I'm going to try that. <laughs> it's just that that effect is the the sky background effect. You know, with noise and and uh, bias and and uh, dark noise, that's an additive effect. So you subtract it to remove it. But these sky backgrounds are more of a multiplicative effect, like a flat, right? So you would just divide by your flat and get rid of it. It's just a it's just a weird flat. Is all it really is yeah that's true so, yeah um okay all right but if you're i mean if that i mean if you're looking at pictures and and, and it removes it good enough then i'm sure that is good enough but i'd like to check that out that's a, sound like a good video yeah i mean i'm also really into people experimenting even though my videos uh show it as a sort of step-by-step process because I think that's easy for people to follow along with. Um, I think as soon as you get through your first sort of step-by-step, you should just try all the different settings. If, if No that's, way, man. No yeah, way. Just... I'm, I'm a harumpher. Oh, okay. all that. No, no, no experimenting, man. You do it the way it's always been done. And I don't want to hear nothing, okay? Yeah. I could do this better at half the cost if I just do it my way. <laughs> You know, I love those guys. Yeah, don't oh, experiment, man. people. Do it the way you've been told. Oh, man. <laughs> um, I recently heard uh, from JB, JP Metzavanio, who's a Finnish astronomer. He named his uh, website Astro Anarchy because when he was coming up with his techniques, everyone was <laughs> yeah. telling him, everyone was telling him, don't do it that way. You can't do it that way. You can't. You can't make a starless image and then process with that. You can't do tone mapping, blah, blah, blah. And, and now his processing techniques are used by thousands. But at the time, everyone was telling him, no, you can't do it that way. So he's, he said, I'm an astro-anarchist. Astro-anarchy. Yeah, look at that. The dark side of art. I'm looking at it right now. This is cool, man. I'm going to check this website out. Uh, yes. Definitely. I mean, I, we. it's so easy in the hobby because you're, you come in, everybody's really timid, right? 
we're all like, oh my God, I don't know anything. And everybody knows so much more than me. And they come in and they just take all this advice and they do all this stuff. Well, you need to be doing it this way and you need to have this kind of telescope and whatever you do, don't listen to that guy because he's got a go-to telescope and he doesn't know nothing. So, you know, they, and you're, you're trying to do all the right things. And so it's almost like an indoctrination. When, you, when you're new, you, you're like afraid to like, maybe say that, well, you know what? I didn't do it that way. And it came out okay. Because you just kind of know that <laughs> you're probably going to get some flack here. So websites like Astro Anarchy are very, very fresh. I'm glad to see that. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Well, let's see here. Instagram, you have an Instagram account, nebulaphotos.com. And it's all spelled out, the .com part. Right. Yep. And I also have a I'm Twitter. I'm just telling people how uh, to find you now. Yeah. Twitter is just Nebula Photos. Uh, the website, which we mentioned, is nebulaphotos.com. Um, I can't think if I have anything else. I don't hey, do, do you Facebook. Guys ever, you guys are big Instagram guys. Dustin's huge on Instagram. Do you guys ever use the freaking IGTV thing? Or do you hate it as much as I did? I've never used it. I've never you used never, it either. No, yeah, I do, I do I, stories, but I don't, I don't do the TV thing. I tried to upload some of my videos to IGTV. But first of all, you got to completely, you can't just rotate the video on its side because it's vertical format. Because first of all, it's looks stupid. But second of all, I, you know, Instagram knows when you've done that and will block your video. They want you to create a video in full vertical mode. That's uh, 1080p by 1920 uh, vertical and, you know, post it that way or else, and, and or else they won't let you uh, upload it. And it's just I, a completely different redesign for how you know shoot who a uses movie it, or for how you shoot a video. Um, I don't know who uses that vertical format. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know anybody putting the time in because of the limitations of IGTV. I mean, it's like nobody wants to go through that. I never use it. I don't even look at IGTV videos. I just look at stories and lives. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just too onerous for someone who creates videos and landscape to suddenly go vertical. Is it's a complete redesign of how you think about a video and what you do with the space and uh so i just never did it plus is I don't the think idea that uh it's you can it's a longer time limit because right, stories is limited is that sort of the idea behind it yeah you think what are you limited to 15 seconds on stories and then um, you can link them yeah, together to 10... go longer but yes yeah okay but so i think you can go up to a 15 minute video um in igtv but it's got to be shot vertically right mm -hmm. so uh, i think it was in mind for somebody who just walks around with their smartphone holding it in their hand and making videos <laughs> yeah. that way. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Anyway, well, I just wondered if you guys used it. Well, Nico, I want to invite you. Um, we do, so every day at three o'clock Pacific, I do Instagram live. And I think you have, you have fascinating content here. Your website's very well done. And this is very helpful information for people. So if you want to join me on Instagram live, you are more than welcome to be a guest. I do them every single day. And then we actually have this thing that, that Tony mentioned briefly that I should probably remind everybody listening of as yeah, well. Yeah, we should talk about this more. <laughs> but yeah. So on Twitch, we are doing virtual star parties every single night for free for anyone to join using remote observatories. And we're actually building observatories around the world for this purpose. But in the meantime, since everybody's at home, we're just using the test bed observatories that we built for our personal use out in near Joshua Tree, California. And um, basically everyone logs in. We talk everything from which equipment to use, processing, and we, we let people log in and run the telescopes. And um, 
Basically, it's a way for them to train on how to use remote systems, and there's no cost at all. And we bring guests on. The other night, I had like 25 guests all in a Zoom meeting, uh, just a conversation, just astronomy conversation. We were there for like five hours that night. But um, it's just think of it like a star party that everybody can do from home and participate in. But we, we like to bring guests that really know the topic, that are really invested in educating people on it. And I think that you'd make a phenomenal guest on there. You really ought to join us and come hang out. That sounds great. I'd love to. I mean, especially since uh, my local astronomy clubs, which I, I usually you know hang out with uh, other astronomers, are, are closed due to the coronavirus. Exactly. So uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it'd be really fun to hang out with people. So we do that every single night at 7 p.m. Pacific for the Star Party. Tony's on weekdays at 5 p.m. Pacific. And uh, so it's you get your dose of science before the uh, Star Party starts with Tony. And then uh, at 7, you know, it's starting to get darker and we open up all the roofs and you can see all this happen live. But everybody's just hanging out and uh, talking. We bring industry leaders on to just join the conversation in video and then everybody just hangs out and has a good time. And so it's just twitch.tv forward slash Gibson picks, but um, it's there all the time, man. And it's getting more and more of a following and it's, it's a fun thing each night. So you got to come hang out with us. Nice. I definitely will. All right. Well, good. Anything else you want to add before we close out this uh, podcast? Um, I'll just add something real quick here, which is, uh, Professionally, I'm a librarian at the Center for Astrophysics, and mm -hmm. I have a project that I think people might be interested in, um, especially when people are all at home. Um, it's called Project Phaedra, and it is a project to preserve the history of the Harvard College Observatory, uh, where a lot of really famous astronomers have worked. Um, for instance, Wilhelmina Fleming, who discovered the Horsehead Nebula, Annie Jump Cannon, who invented the stellar classification system, uh, Henrietta Leavitt, who discovered the period luminosity relationship. Um, and so we have all of these astronomers' notebooks digitized, and we're asking people to help us transcribe them. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can just Google Project Phaedra and find things. We have a project up on uh, the Zooniverse, too. Uh, so it's really easy. You don't have to have a background in astronomy, but most people who are helping uh, are interested in astronomy because uh, you're you're working with the actual research of uh, some of the really important uh, astronomers um, of the 19th century. Now, looking at their notebooks, it's probably a great way to gain some insight also into you know some of their thinking and and what was happening on a. They're just very personal uh, in many ways to connect them. Okay. Yes, and uh, we you, you'll find cool things in there. Like we found uh, a guest book uh, for the observatory where Albert Einstein uh, was recorded as as visiting. Uh, so really, really uh -huh. neat things. Well, if any, Harvard has got a long and storied history uh, in astronomy, so there's no question that there's a lot of amazing stuff there to be seen. Well, that's really cool. So, uh, uh, Project Phaedra or Operation Phaedra? Project Phaedra. Yep. Project Phaedra. Okay, great. All right, guys. So check that out. And uh, that's really cool. All right. Well, Nico Carter, thanks for joining us, man. This has been a great podcast. I want to uh, I look forward to seeing you on Instagram and on your YouTube channels as well. So uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Dustin. OK, so on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you all so very much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. 
Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.